is uh, to say we're going to balance the books and then oops the numbers are worse than we thought we're going to have to break our promises that's not what I'm going to do I'm being honest with Canadians we're going to run three deficits and we're going to invest in the future Canadians need right now Justin Trudeau says he doesn't have to explain how he will pay for his promises once again tens of billions of dollars of new spending because as he famously announced the budget will balance itself do budgets balance themselves in Hamilton region here well actually friends let's be fair Justin is now changing his tune he now says today he will run a deficit a modest deficit I guess it turns out the budget doesn't balance itself after all Memories from the 2015 general election in Canada, when Justin Trudeau running to be Prime Minister promised never to run a deficit greater than $10 billion, knowing that Canadians don't want to see Canada return to what we saw in the 90s, runaway deficits, rising debt, and fleeing investment dollars, a climate that wasn't welcoming investment. The northern Mexico, as some was calling us at the time. So he promised never to let that deficit click above $10 billion. Well, we now know, years later, they've never had a deficit even close to $10 billion. That tiny little deficit that was being promised in 2015 by Justin Trudeau was on average in the $24 to $25 billion range prior to COVID-19. And the need to run deficits, whether they needed to be as large as they were, is, is something that is open for debate. But Canada, as of today, has $1.29 trillion in debt in a rising inflationary environment, meaning the government is benefiting. Generally, about $4 billion in, dollars in new tax revenue comes in with every point of rising inflation. So the government is benefiting, and we saw that in the recent budget. But Canadians from coast to coast are not, particularly people that were already struggling to pay their rents, struggling to fill up the car for their commute to work, struggling with the costs of groceries and activities for the children. Canada is in a very difficult environment where we have massive debt, runaway deficits, a high tax environment, and capital investment being very weary about Canada. So that's why the economy matters. That's why fighting deficits matters. That's why making sure Canada is an attractive place to invest matters, not just today, but for our children who will be faced with that $1.3 trillion in debt. Today, we're going to talk about these economic issues with one of Canada's leading economic experts. I'm fortunate to be joined here on the Blue Skies political podcast by Dr. Jan Mintz. Dr. Mintz held the Professor of Business Economics position at the Rotman School of Business from 1989 to 2007. Before that, he was at the Economics Department at Queen's University. He's taught in Canada and the U.S. and is one of the leading figures talking about taxation, business competitiveness, and economic issues. He's consulted widely with the World Bank, the IMF, and the OECD. And now Dr. Mintz is the President's Fellow of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary after serving as the Palmer Chair and Founding Director in 2008 to 2015. And today he's not in Calgary, but he's joining us from Edmonton. Dr. Mintz, welcome to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, listen, let's start off with that staggering number. $1.29 trillion in debt. What does that mean for Canadians today and, and certainly for future generations, particularly at this time of record inflation and economic uncertainty? Well, actually, uh, I'm going to correct the number a bit because you have underestimated the size of our overall indebtedness. Uh, first of all, if you include both uh, federal, provincial and municipal debt, all government debt, 
Um, if you look at the OECD now, or sort of the International Monetary Fund numbers, uh, they are, uh, it's roughly around 110% of GDP. GDP today is around $2.5 trillion. So we're talking about uh, overall gross debt, uh, close to, uh, you know, $3 trillion. So that's pretty large. But even that doesn't include other indebtedness, which is associated with uh, commitments that we have as governments towards healthcare and pensions that particularly are associated with the aging population uh, of our of our country. And so people have asked the question, what would happen if we had to put together a fund to cover the costs of healthcare, pensions, uh, et cetera, and, uh, in order to cover uh, those expenditures that are quickly coming upon this country, especially this decade and the following decade as our population ages, because most of these expenditures are in the last uh, part of one's life, and they're going to have to be paid by those who are working. And uh, when you start including that, you start getting numbers that go up closer to 200% of GDP. Uh, and so those are big numbers uh, in terms of our overall indebtedness. Now, people will subtract off assets that are held by the gun, by governments, and that's perfectly fine to do, but that still will only get you to a number that's closer to around 120% of GDP. So my point is, is that the debt problem is even bigger than we think. And in fact, aging is, is, is remarkably uh, fast now. Uh, when I looked at the numbers for Canada, uh, 17% of the population was over the age of 65 uh, in, in the year 2000, uh, 2020, sorry. And by 2030, it's gonna be uh, around 23, 24%. Uh, so over this decade, we're gonna have very fast aging where people are gonna need long-term care, they're gonna need their pensions, they're gonna need healthcare, uh, all sorts of other expenditures, demands that are gonna be faced by governments. So we have a huge issue uh, with debt, and, and it's going to be called upon by those younger people of society who are working and trying to make their ends meet, too, at a time when we're facing inflation and higher housing prices and everything else that people are facing. So this is a, a, a huge issue in terms of intergenerational transfers, uh, which is going to be uh, very significant, where the elderly are going to need support, but younger population is going to have to uh, face these expenditures, which they themselves have been uh, facing pressures that uh, we have not seen for, for quite some time with the kind of inflation that's now going on. Uh, so none of that is very good. And then to get to your uh, final uh, question, Aaron, and that is, what does this mean to Canada? Well, part of it is this intergenerational transfer that's going to be uh, immense that we're going to have to deal with. Uh, but the other part is the risk associated with, with gross debt, uh, where if uh, if it gets out of hand too much, uh, that's when governments uh, start facing the problem of trying to issue their debt to the international market. And right now, Canada is not viewed as highly risky in terms of its fiscal situation, but one never knows once you start getting into recessions and commodity price uh, busts and things like that, that all of a sudden people are going to feel that Canada is going to be too risky in terms of holding their debt, uh, holding bonds issued by governments uh, and the private sector. And then all of a sudden we, we have a, a problem in that respect, especially since if you look at the data, government of Canada bonds, uh, about 22% are held by non-residents. And, and we're actually one of the highest amongst G7 countries uh, and with relatively short debt. So as soon as we start going out to the market, we need the confidence of international markets all the time. And so that's why we have to worry about any potential risks to that confidence that at this time is good, but, but something that we have to be careful not to sacrifice. Absolutely. In fact, I was already a little discouraged to be standing at the base of a debt mountain of $1.3 trillion. Uh, you've reminded us that there, we're actually in front of Everest, a $3 trillion debt mountain because there really is only one taxpayer. So if, if you do add the cumulative effect of that 1.3 trillion on the federal balance sheet, you look at the provinces, the municipal levels of government, which have grown in leaps and bounds in the last 25 years, you're looking at the, 
the cost of the problem. And part of what we want to talk about today is not just the the debt situation and the economic uh, uh, situation for the country, but productivity, healthcare, they're, they're all related because as you said, in 2014, there were 6 million seniors, people above 65 in Canada, about 15% of the population. Uh, as you've said, we're on the cusp of having 23% of our society being senior, uh, being, as you said, taking up the higher cost in the healthcare system in the final years of life as they age into the 70s, 80s. And we're going to have fewer people, younger generation paying, and there's also productivity challenges. So one before we leave past that debt mountain, as inflation goes up, the, the revenues come into government through their forms of tax, their taxing items, and they're raising more money. They raise the carbon tax. But we're also seeing eventually the obligations of the federal government to service their debt going up as well in this rising interest rate environment. We now believe there will be a, a, a series of interest rate increases by the central bank over the coming months. Are we, are we going to get back into a situation like we found ourselves in the 90s where that ever-increasing amount of servicing of the debt becomes a, an issue? Because you'll recall a couple of years ago, uh, the finance minister, Minister Freeland, was saying this is the best time to borrow. This is, this is uh, we would we would be negligent if we weren't borrowing at this time. And of course, they said it was all for infrastructure. It, it never was. What are the real risks of this higher debt in a rising uh, interest rate environment? You know, we have to remember that as interest rates go up, uh, the cost of uh, servicing that debt is going to go up. And how quickly it goes up depends on the term structure uh, of the debt. So, for example, the federal government uh, right now has one of the shorter term structures amongst G7 countries uh, for debt, which means they have to go out to the market more often to service that debt. So within, you know, seven, eight years, a lot of that debt is going to turn over. And so if you get a two-point hike in the rate of interest, that means an extra $50 uh, billion per year. Uh, which means it's going to start crowding out some of the government expenditures uh, as a result. Now, we have to recall that inflation itself uh, has uh, two impacts in reducing some of the burden of debt. Uh, because debt is carried out in nominal dollars, and of course, with higher inflation, the real cost of that debt uh, declines, the purchasing power of that debt, which is a benefit to any borrower, whether it's government uh, or corporations or, or individuals when they borrow money. Uh, if uh, you have higher inflation, uh, then that nominal cost or the real cost of that debt falls, even though the nominal cost remains the same. Um, so that's one one issue that I think helps governments when when you do have inflation. And, and, and history has shown that one way that governments try to get out of their debt burden is to inflate the economy, which is not necessarily the best thing because it causes higher prices. And that hurts people in another way in, in losing the purchasing power of their own money. Uh, but the other thing about inflation is that governments tend to benefit from inflation. Uh, and that's because their tax revenues go up with inflation. And we've seen this happen now uh, in in uh, Ottawa, where uh, as well as the provincial governments, where after the pandemic, they've quickly come back to uh, balanced budgets or close to balanced budgets. Uh, several of the provinces are balancing this current year. Uh, and in fact, a number of them are also very close to balancing next year uh, or the year after. So uh, that's, that's a very uh, positive thing in that sense. Uh, but we have to remember that's because all this tax revenue is coming in because as as prices go up, then governments get more consumption taxes, uh, and they may also get more income taxes, especially uh, from taxing interest and, and, and stock market gains and things like that. Uh, and so the money pours in. Uh, and so uh, that's a, a positive result in, in terms of what's happening. Uh, but it's a positive result mainly for governments, uh, because it's people that are going to end up be paying more for food and everything else. Yes, you've, you've talked about how um, some of the provinces are seeing these 
uh, faster than expected returns to balance or near balance. The other big driver, which I never lose sight of the irony with the Trudeau government benefiting from the current economy, higher tax revenues due to inflation, is also the return of resource prices and a return of our resource economy, which the Trudeau government has have bent over backwards trying to actually transition away from. So the 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 increase to our our GDP in 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 the last year, a big factor in it has been a return to to more traditional resource prices, particularly for oil and gas. Um, all these factors coming in on the revenue side. But leaving aside the excessive debt taken on from COVID and the current environment. You wrote a, a, a great article uh, a few weeks ago or a couple of months ago, it might have been now, uh, calling for a tax revolt, particularly for uh, the personal income taxes and it crossing the 50% threshold. But one thing you put in perspective was that if we just went back to 2015 levels of 38.5% of GDP collected in by the government in form of tax and other revenues, we're now at 41.2%. So the size of government has grown apart from, uh, apart from COVID expenditures. If we just went back to 2015 levels, and I started off with that famous clip that Justin Trudeau promised he'd never run massive deficits and, and grow government in a way that was out of control. If we went back to that level, that would be $70 billion of economic capacity free for tax reductions or for uh, supporting long-term care or some of the critical aspects that we saw were wanting in the pandemic. Um, is, is that something we should be looking at? Because the, the, the size of government to our productivity and to our economic capacity is growing at a pace that we simply can't afford. Well, I think so. In fact, part of the reason and that article did was about three weeks ago. But anyway, uh, but the reason I uh, particularly uh, wanted to hone in on that issue uh, is that what I'm seeing uh, is that many people are saying, oh, we need more money spent by governments. We need, you know, we need guaranteed incomes. We need uh, we need to have uh, more dental uh, plans. We need to have uh, pharmacare, we need to have uh, uh, more defense expenditure, etc. And yes, there are various needs that that, that uh, people would like to have, but there's no such thing as a free good, and someone has to eventually pay for it. And what I do find is that there's a lot of spending that goes on that I think we have to seriously ask about what is the role of government, uh, and to what how far does government uh, provide uh, money to to people because nothing is free. And, and so we need to think a little bit more about what is the appropriate size of government. And here I was, you know, looking, I, I've done a lot of work over the years, uh, you know, uh, on this issue and, and wrote a book on, on this back in 2002 called Most Favored Nation. But it was looking at how we let our government spending go out of whack in the 1970s and 80s, uh, which went from... Uh, about a third of the economy, or, or a little bit more, uh, to uh, over to almost forty percent, and here we're now back to forty one, forty two percent. In fact, that's not expected to decline. Uh, this is including both provincial and municipal government spending as well as federal spending. But we have to ask the question: like, why? Why do we need more spending now with all these calls for more spending? Uh, when why don't we should be asking the question: why? Why do we need such large governments? And maybe there are things that governments should not be spending so much money on. For example, uh, business subsidies, uh, which are a huge amount of money that's being spent uh, on these things. Uh, electric car vehicle subsidies, which are going to the relatively better off. Um, when If governments are putting in a mandate, what do, what do we need to subsidize it? I mean, force people to buy electric cars. That's where life is. If we believe that's the way that we're good, we should go. But I think we have to ask a lot of questions about the kind of spending that we do do and do government. And here I said, why don't we just go back to 38.5% of GDP um, instead of over 40%? Because over 40% is now larger than what we've normally had. And, and I don't think that's a, a scary concept that we should have a little bit less government expenditure. And that could afford a $70 billion tax cut of some sort 
assuming balanced budgets uh, by that point, as I pointed out in the article, we were getting to that point of balanced budgets with all the money coming in due to inflation and growth. Yes, and it was actually some of your work uh, chairing the government's Committee on Business Taxation in 1996 at 97 that helped corporate tax reform uh, in the years following to get our corporate tax rate in, in a much more competitive position. And for a number of years, it was vis-a-vis uh, our large friends and, and market to the South of the United States. That's changing uh, a bit, but the personal tax burden um, has been has been rising. And there's almost been this, this narrative set by the Liberal government that uh, the middle class and those working hard to join it, Mr. Trudeau's favorite line in the House of Commons, were kind of being hurt by the wealthy 1% and the people that weren't paying their fair share. This is all the language of almost class division we've seen from this government. Uh, We're going to sort of migrate into the next section where we're talking about productivity and capital investment in Canada. But when you when you cross that Rubicon of 50% personal tax for Canadians, particularly entrepreneurs, particularly people expanding a, a privately held company, uh, they start looking at opportunities in the United States. And is is that threshold a real risk for people that are employing other Canadians, are investing, that are benefactors to universities and hospitals? Are we potentially causing a bit of a brain drain of that entrepreneurial class at the tax rates we have at a personal level now? Well, I think uh, we've already seen some of that already happen. We, uh, I know a number of people that have actually moved out of the country since 2015, uh, especially from Alberta, because you had two hikes that went on at the same time in that year, uh, one under the NDP Alberta government uh, that uh, raised top rates from 10 to 15% uh, in Alberta. And then you had the hike at the federal level that went from 29 to 33%. Uh, and so all of a sudden people saw that were who were entrepreneurs and others they saw all of a sudden a nine point increase in the in their top rate on on income uh although it's slightly less than 50 percent it was a huge increase and so a number of people said that's it i'm, I'm moving and in fact there's been uh, a significant loss of of some uh tax base uh as a result and so when you start looking at the numbers we didn't raise as much money as we thought but at the same time we also pushed out some of the significant job creators in our economy uh to go to other jurisdictions and that i don't think was very positive for young people who want to do well um, they may not think very much about taxation when they first start off after university and and they start a business but then they start moving in that in in developing their business and they start going abroad in their businesses and then all of a sudden they find gee canada's tax level is much higher than what i find in the united states and and maybe some other countries and maybe it's time that i try and do something about that and and so they look for ways of of trying to uh find that relief uh which also means putting investment dollars in other countries rather than putting it into into Canada. And, and so that ends up uh, being a cost to Canada as well. I think the personal tax issue, and, and my friend uh, and colleague, De- uh, Bev Dalby, who's done a lot of work on the marginal cost of taxation, now estimates that because of all the federal and provincial uh, personal tax hikes that have gone on since about 2012, 2013, uh, that, uh, that the the marginal cost of taxation associated with the personal tax is now even higher than the corporate tax. It's reversed. And that's because we brought the corporate tax rates down since uh, 2000. And we had to because we were completely uncompetitive at that time. Uh, But now uh, we're getting uncompetitive with respect to the personal tax. In fact, our top rate is one of the highest in the OECD, not as high as Sweden and, and the Scandinavian countries. Uh, but also what hurts is that it's at a relatively low income level. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the top rate comes in at, at an income level, uh, which is uh, roughly in, in American dollars, about uh, $180,000. Uh, and that's actually quite low compared, uh, compared to most countries. So if you look at France, 
and, and the UK and other countries, or well, France particularly, and Germany, uh, the, the top rate comes in a much higher income level. So uh, we do have an issue, I think, uh, to deal with personal tax, because a lot of our productivity gains is going to come from uh, people creating new things in, in Canada, and, and they're going to and they're going to be discouraged by a tax system uh, that doesn't recognize their contributions. Yes, and our, our friends in the Scandinavian con- countries can't ride a bicycle to the United States, their, their largest competitor, uh, and a very tax competitive environment like a small business owner in Windsor. I often said our auto industry, Windsor, Detroit was a great example that if we if we do too many things at a step with the United States, whether it's carbon taxes, uh, personal taxes, when it's so easy to shift uh, capital investment literally kilometers away, uh, we're putting ourselves at a disadvantage. Following up on this further, because you wrote about Professor Dalby's work, and in fact, the economic loss they found in the paper they published, that 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 the higher the rate for that entrepreneurial class, that tax rate, the bigger the economic cost per dollar raised. So the government is taking in more dollars from this this 1% that Justin Trudeau talks about all the time. But there's a higher economic cost for that. And over time, we're losing uh, intellectual property development. We're we're losing uh, expansion investments. We're losing jobs that would be created. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a pretty scary figure that she she factored into that, that we're actually driving away more than the government's ever getting. Well, I think uh, it's uh, it's something that economists um, uh, end up estimating is is what they call the deadweight loss of taxation, and and uh, what this analysis does is they say, okay, governments do get some revenue associated with a, a, a tax increase as long as they're not on the wrong side of the Laffer curve. I mean, there are some uh, situations where if you raise taxes, you actually reduce revenues, and uh, in fact, uh, in fact, uh, Bev Dalby found that. Um, and his colleague found that actually in the case of corporate income taxation in certain provinces like the Atlantic provinces, that if they actually uh, re- uh, reduce their corporate income tax rates, it actually gain more revenues, not reduce it. Uh, but in the case of the personal tax, uh, we've, uh, uh, we'd, there may be some additional revenues that come in, uh, but then uh, the discouragement of uh, work effort, risk-taking, investments, uh, et cetera, ends up uh, costing more uh, than the revenues that come in. And, and therefore, there's a real uh, economic loss associated uh, with each dollar of taxes that are being raised. Mm-hmm. Well, going from that, that, that economic opportunity cost for the higher tax rate into the challenge we've been facing with productivity and capital investment in Canada. You know, I, I spoke a lot about uh, in the last campaign, growing up in the Oshawa area, my father working at General Motors, and years later when I was a lawyer for Procter & Gamble, I, I was fascinated by how really the Canadian dollar was the, the biggest element of, of the sort of productivity advantage to expanding in Canada. There was healthcare and some other differentiators. But in, in recent years, particularly with some of the changes in the United States and with the federal carbon tax and, and other measures, we're suddenly um, not as attractive as a place to invest. We're, we're having productivity challenges in Canada and going back to that discussion of our aging population, if we're having free dental care and free this and free that, and, and if biologics are coming into the pharmaceutical industry, which are going to offer remarkable quality of life to, to Canadians, but are, are very expensive, our, our productivity challenges as a country is meaning that our en- economic engine is sputtering at a time there's gonna be more demands from our country on on all levels of government. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And, and why has there been um, a decline in investment in Canada, in your view, in the last number of years? Well, I think, uh, first of all, um, productivity has been rather poor. In fact, one of the pieces I showed much earlier on, uh, which I think was about a year ago, uh, is that our per capita growth in GDP uh, from 19... 19- 15, including 2020, of course, which was a very bad day, uh, year with the pandemic, uh, was actually negative. 
uh, and it was the first time that that's happened, uh, having a five-year period like that uh, for a very long time, going back to the basically uh, uh, the second, you know, the depression. Um, can you can you break that down a little bit more for our listeners? What you mean exactly by it being negative, and what makes that so striking? Well, in other words, uh, if we measure um, the inflation-adjusted GDP, real GDP, and divided by uh, Canada's population, that's real per capita uh, GDP, uh, that actually declined uh, from 2015 to 2020. And it was, you know, because of the pandemic year, it was an unusual year, but things happened like that. Uh, it was a very bad five years. And in fact, two of those years were decent in terms of some growth in and productivity, uh, but three of them were quite poor. And in fact, uh, it wasn't just the pandemic year that was highly negative, but it was also another year in 2016 that was negative too. So. You know, we've had, uh, in other words, the population is growing faster than GDP when that happens. And uh, that kind of uh, poor productivity, which normally we used to think of Canada having 1% growth in, in real per capita GDP each year. Um, when you're when you're going down, if you take out the pandemic year, it was only a half a point uh, during during those those years. Uh, so we, we've had a decline in, in, in our productivity. Uh, it's been falling for quite a while, actually. We had much better growth back in the 1960s uh, when governments were smaller, by the way. Uh, but, uh, but we did have uh, better growth much earlier on uh, in terms of actual per capita growth. And so uh, we need to worry about that because we, we won't be able to afford um, social services for, for the general population. People are gonna struggle more in terms of having enough money to cover the costs of uh, buying food and, 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 and other necessities that they need, shelter, et cetera, um, if we don't have good growth. And of course, the burden of, of government debt is gonna be more onerous if we don't get good growth. And so there's various things that contribute to growth. One of them, of course, is our human capital, how well we do as a population in terms of ideas and innovation and things like that to grow the economy. Uh, on that, we're not too bad. Uh, although we could, I, I do worry about the lack of startup uh, firms moving into higher and larger or bigger firms. That's been a, a, a constant problem that uh, we've faced in Canada for many years. Um, but generally, our population is hardworking and well-educated, uh, which is a positive thing. And, and many businesses that come to Canada recognize that Canada actually has a very good working force uh, uh, to work with. So that, that's a positive thing in terms of our human capital. But our, but our physical capital has been uh, declining, and it's been declining since 2015. Obviously, the, the resource uh, price bust. Uh, especially in oil and gas, and uh, but even in some of the other commodities like mining, uh, contributed to uh, a reduction in, in private investment since 2014, uh, when that bust occurred. Uh, however, uh, there's been other sectors that have not done well as well. In fact, the numbers that we've looked at, you've had negative growth in things like retail trade, uh, manufacturing slightly positive, not very good, uh, and et cetera. Other sectors have not done uh, that well, except for a couple like professional and technical services. And so uh, if we're not doing very well in most of our sectors in, in private investment, then people are not buying the latest vintages of capital, the things that are most innovative, uh, nor are they developing new innovative uh, uh, projects uh, that improve our productivity. And, and so we, we really have had uh, a significant dearth uh, since 2015, uh, which is a, a reversal, by the way, of the earlier decade. In fact, we actually had pretty good productivity growth, except for the financial crisis in 2008 and 9. But we've had pretty good productivity growth uh, that actually happened from 2005 to 2015, uh, and 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 much better growth than what we saw in the 1990s, which was uh, the period 1989 to 1999 was a very bad decade for Canada in terms of productivity growth. In fact, we were fourth lowest of all OECD countries at that time, which people don't recognize, um, and it improved a lot after 2000, especially as we that went through a period, which actually 
liberal governments, uh, as well as the conservative governments, brought in various tax reductions, both on the corporate and, and the personal side, uh, as well as the GST rate uh, at that time. That um, that actually led to uh, that actually helped boost help boost the economy. Uh, and and our productivity growth, uh, we're lacking that right now, and, and I think it's something that uh, I'm not sure we we're we're going to have. And and it's not just taxation that plays a role; it's also the overregulation uh, mm-hmm. that is hurting investment, and 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 the problems that are associated with that. Yeah, no, that's what I wanted to to blend right into was the the. the the regulation, the, the red tape burdens, as you might short form it, because we did get our corporate tax rate in a competitive position as part of the, the recommendations from your committee, uh, expert committee given to the the Kretchen Martin uh, governments uh, implemented and expanded also under the, the conservative government. Um, but there's been in the last number of years, particularly since 2015, with bills like Bill C-69 and others, there's this sense that no projects can get done in Canada uh, with multiple levels of government review and red tape, how many rounds of an environmental assessment, um, what satisfies the duty to consult and engage with Indigenous groups. I know I've explored that on, on the, the Blue Skies podcast before, but there's a sense that nothing can get built, whether it's LNG terminals in, in British Columbia, whether it's a pipeline to get Western crude to, to Europe to offset uh, the, the, the hold Putin has over Germany and other countries. Um, is that regulatory burden now more detrimental than a higher tax burden of, of years past because people are never sure when they're going to get return on a capital investment because of years and years of, of approvals and regulatory delays? Well, actually, uh, it certainly is uh, an, an impact. In fact, one of the things that I did uh, in the past several years is, 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 is develop a, a methodology in which you can actually measure uh, regulatory costs in terms of delaying projects uh, and the time taken to, to finish a project uh, with the tax burden. Um, in fact, I used to call it both uh, tax and regulatory uh, effective tax rate, in a sense, effective tax and regulatory cost rate. Um, and it's, it can be quite significant. Delay costs could be quite large. Uh, and that applies to construction of buildings. It applies to um, the finding and development of mineral resources, uh, forestry, uh, et cetera. So uh, those time delay costs can be very expensive. And there's um, a number of studies have shown Canada one of its uh, significant weaknesses is the is, uh, long time it takes for permitting. And just to give you an example, uh, I know of an, in Calgary, uh, someone who was trying to get a uh, a commercial warehouse built. I mean, we're, we're not talking about a pipeline. We're talking about a commercial warehouse uh, to be built uh, so that he could ship canola to India. It has taken three years to just get approval for that canola, just that one warehouse, because of uh, of a municipality. In this case, it wasn't Calgary; it was uh, it was outside Calgary, uh, holding it up. Uh, and so, there's a real serious governance problem that we have with respect to making decisions over capital projects, and it, and it pervades both at federal, provincial, and municipal levels. And and we need to fix that problem. Otherwise, it imposes a huge cost on on capital investment in this country, including public infrastructure spending. Yeah, that example just resonated, Jack, with uh, a meeting I had at my constituency office in Bowenville last week. A uh, uh, an entrepreneur filed for a site plan license in Whitby, which is not in my community, but it's in the Durham region. Jim Flaherty's old riding next door to mine um, in 2018. It's 2022, and this is for a, a low, lower level commercial type space. Um, and he has to wait for that to be approved to even apply then for the building permits and other things. Going back to your, your reminder that we have $3 trillion worth of debt at all levels of government, municipalities have grown by double digits over the last 20, 30 years. And there seems to be with that more people 
but more delay and more bureaucracy and and that culture of nothing getting done is is setting in in all governments so australia has a productivity commission if 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 i had won the election and this was a zoom call of me saying i'm prime minister o'toole jack what can i do in the short term to reverse this productivity trend what are one or two things that that you would say we need to do now to to stop this trend well i think uh i think we have to uh, develop an o- open for business type attitude and to think more about how we can rely on the private sector. I mean, take like infrastructure as an example. You know, we, we, we always call about, uh, we always talk about the lack of infrastructure, public infrastructure in, in uh, you know, let's say housing or uh, lack of uh, public spending on, on roads and, and, and highways and, 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 and things like that. You know what's interesting about Canada is we actually have a pretty good communications infrastructure. And who actually spends money on infrastructure and communications? It's the private sector. It's almost 95% of it is privately built. And part of it has been because we haven't screwed up our regulatory system too badly when it comes to communication um, uh, because we've let uh, our private uh, producers uh, provide it. Now, uh, there's certainly things to improve there, uh, as we we know we don't uh, we we prohibit uh, foreign competition in in the communications industry, but still we have a pretty good broadband system. Could be better in the rural area. You know, there's costs associated with trying to provide that to every farmhouse in Canada, uh, but uh, generally we have a really good system, and it's privately produced. Where we always talk about is the lack of spending is in public infrastructure and i think that i think is uh indicative of a problem that we don't like pricing and and we don't like tolling roads and we don't like doing all sorts of things and so my point is that i think we need to start thinking more about some private sector type solutions uh to some of our productivity issues uh and that means trying to remove some of the barriers to private development uh as well as uh, cleaning up some of the uh, political decisions that are often made that interfere with the best allocation of resources in the economy. Uh, For example, when governments start throwing subsidies in order to preserve companies from going bankrupt, uh, as they've done in many industries in the past, like the pulp and paper industry, et cetera, uh, then that keeps capital in the in in to produce very low returns uh, in 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 Canada, and so we need to do more in terms of think about getting governments out of the boardrooms of the country, and and letting the private producers actually uh, make decisions about where to best put money to get the highest economic returns, rather than political decisions about where those economic returns are. Uh, I've heard that expression before, and maybe it can be attributable to you, Jack, uh, a, a, a paraphrasing of, of Pierre Trudeau's get the state out of the bedrooms of the nation, get them out of the boardrooms of the nation. I, I agree with you 100%. What I find interesting about the telecommunications example is that's an area of exclusive federal jurisdiction. So maybe this is one area where we don't have multiple levels of overlapping regulation gumming the system up and it lets that private capital get deployed faster. I think there's a lot of lessons learned there. And as you said, being open to private sector type solutions, let's transition into the to the last part of the discussion that I alluded to earlier when we talked about our aging demographic that in, in by the end of this decade, we will have almost a quarter of our population being senior citizen. Um, going from productivity, in most cases, they're out of the workforce. Uh, and they're transitioning into a time of life where they won't be as productive. They they have been. They've helped build this great country, but there'll also be a higher demand on the, the healthcare end of of services, and very controversial. Going back to 2015, Mr. Trudeau very very myopically reversed the old age security changes that would have had 67 as. The, the year, uh, like most Western nations, recognizing demographic change, um, they reverse that and it's become political and, and uh, 
we're going to pay the price longer term. But when it comes to health care, um, this became an issue in the federal election where the Liberals released a video of me talking about empowering provinces to, to leverage um, private investments in digital imaging or, or services, provided that universal access could be paramount. Um, any conversation about uh, that private sector learnings, you're saying, in the context of health, gets instantly attacked by many in the media and certainly by this liberal government. But do we not need some of that capital and some of that efficiency to meet the rising, as some people called it, the gray tsunami demographically facing us over the next generation? Well, I think, first of all, I think uh, Canadians generally don't want to see people bankrupt, bankrupt themselves over healthcare expenditures. And so the idea of having uh, government support uh, to cover healthcare expenditures, I think is very popular in Canada, but it's also done, for example, in, in Europe and, and, and uh, other countries as well. Uh, Europe, of course, they have what are called parallel systems where you have both public and private supply, uh, private uh, supply does mean charging for their own services uh, separately than what the government will cover, but governments still cover 80% of the cost of, of public health care uh, or of health care in, in Europe, which is actually more than Canada, ours is 70%. And that's because Canada dental is completely uh, private. Uh, drugs are r roughly private with certain uh, government support and and uh, and home care and things like that. So, uh, you know, we, we, we're we a lot more private than, than people think. But I think when, when there's a lot of confusion over this, and that is because um, when you actually think about public uh, delivery, you uh, or uh, and pricing, those are two separate things. You could have a universal uh, a uh, single payer system for prices, but then the question is who delivers it, mm -hmm. and it can be done by a uh, a public enterprise, which let's call it a hospital owned by the government, uh, or it can be done by a private clinic. And what's happened in Canada at the provincial level, and and this is generally true across the country, uh, especially in I know in, in British Columbia and in, in Ontario, uh, there's been uh, uh, quite a bit of reliance on private suppliers of healthcare. They still they can't they don't charge people uh, for the service. They get paid by the government, just like a hospital that is a public enterprise. Uh, but you end up getting more different types of services that are being provided by different players. Plus you start empowering doc doctors to become more in innovative. And in fact, many healthcare experts are, are arguing for primary care, which is something which we lived in England at one time, my wife and I, and we had that experience back in the 1970s where we had a family doctor who was sort of the gatekeeper. Uh, we went to a clinic and then if we needed certain specialty services, uh, we were able to get that through uh, our private, our primary uh, doctor, uh, who would then send us to a specialist. Uh, so Britain has been doing this for effectively for a very long time. And governments can contract out to clinics uh, that uh, become private, you know, privately owned and, and operating, but their revenue stream comes from the government solely and not from people. And, and that is not privatization. What that is, is really still a public healthcare system funded by the government, uh, but it's using different delivery systems, which I think can help a lot in terms of driving efficiency as well as innovation in the system. Well, the greatest example, I think, in Canada uh, is the Schulteis Clinic for hernia surgeries, which a few years ago when I heard a talk on this was one of the top 10 uh, business cases at Harvard Business School was the Schuldice Clinic, uh, providing that degree of specialization, expertise, performance excellence, but efficiency so much so that it was kind of grandfathered in to the emerging uh, public care system uh, in universal payer. As you said, the issue wasn't who was paying, it was who delivers superior outcomes and uh, and better services. And you're right, most Canadians, until they've really 
um, you know, had children and had an interaction with the hospital system don't realize a hospital accommodation itself, rehabilitation services, often there's a, a payer element to those things you pay for your uh, uh, room in some cases you pay at least part if you don't have insurance of rehabilitation we've got critical gaps in mental health care we don't have enough uh, practitioners we have a huge and rising need Um, this this could be an area where if the federal government didn't set this sort of culture of of fear about uh, any innovation within the system, we could actually have better delivery, better services, still with the system that Canadians are used to. Well, you know, just to give you another example, uh, and this is not necessarily the best subject to raise, but, uh, you know, the waiting time in Ontario, when I first had to get my colonoscopy, at the, I went to the Rudd Clinic, which was a private clinic that provided it. Uh, but of course, I, it was OHIP that paid for it. Uh, I had a three-month waiting time. Came to Alberta, only two hospitals in Calgary were allowed to do uh, uh, colonoscopy tests. And uh, it took three years as a waiting time. And that's because Alberta has not introduced enough of this idea of allowing non-hospital clinics providing services. And that's a situation that's starting to change. Alberta now has introduced uh, a surgical uh, 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 program following Saskatchewan, by the way, uh, which is going to allow a lot more private clinics to to provide uh, various uh, surgical um, uh, services that go beyond just cataract operations, which are now often done by many private clinics throughout Canada, uh, but uh, but also knee knee and, and hip surgeries and, and, and other things like that. Uh, and that's going to be a tremendous opportunity. And what, and the federal government, they're, they're responsible for Indigenous health. And they should be thinking about how can we do something to deliver Indigenous health at a much better way than, than what's currently being done for our Indigenous people. Uh, and and certainly the concept of a clinic on reserves could be a fascinating idea to think about, uh, where maybe uh, uh, many Indigenous people will get much better healthcare services than they're currently getting, which they often have to re- rely on the provinces, uh, and and provinces actually using helicopters or other modes of transportation in order to get them to clinics in in, in urban centers or or hospitals in urban centers. Uh, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of innovation that we could think about uh, that could expand healthcare in in many ways. And the federal government is responsible for some of that healthcare, uh, f- such as the indigenous, but also veterans and and others. That and the uh, that they should be actually uh, thinking about what they could do uh, in their delivery of of healthcare uh, to the populations that they're responsible for as well. Absolutely. I saw that when I was Veterans Affairs Minister. I, uh, working with the Prime Minister, actually transferred the last remaining Veterans Affairs Hospital. So the hospitals set up after World War I, but largely after World War II. Uh, the first to be transferred in the 60s was Sunnybrook, transferred to the provincial government. The last was St. Anne in Quebec. PQ governments and other things complicated it. So Stephen Harper said, Aaron, I want you to finally get this last hospital started under Pierre Trudeau. The last hospital was was transferred. And then the federal government would contract for the bed for the provincial healthcare provider or increasingly with uh, private companies for rehabilitation services or for mental health services. So I saw the federal government doing this themselves uh, in the context of two of the three areas that the federal government is responsible for, as you said, Indigenous peoples, members of the military, and of course they have their own healthcare uh, occupations, and then veterans. Um, I think this is a conversation that is needed because even the CBC the other day had a had a few people on, and there was a woman in Fort St. John, BC, Northern BC, in her mid-40s, active. She's going to wait several years for knee replacement surgery. Uh, she knew how many thousands of people were ahead of her. The wait lists have gotten larger as a result of the COVID bubble. Here's someone in her most productive years waiting 
for surgery that is now, unless there's other complications, pretty routine in terms of orthopedics that could be done faster. And that's someone in their 40s. We're going to have by 2030, almost 10 million people who are seniors needing knees, hips, and, and even more complex services. So when do you think at least this government or future governments will stop playing the, the private sector boogeyman in healthcare and start innovating to serve people better? I don't know. I hope it can happen soon because we're getting into a situation. Uh, and this is why it's so especially important at the provincial level, because healthcare takes up, you know, 40 to 50% of provincial budgets. Uh, you know, as we know, there's really two major departments at the provincial level. It's the health department and the finance department. And and government really depends very much on, on, on and what they provide people depend very much on those two departments. And so healthcare is a huge issue. And it's going to get even more problematical this decade. As we talked about the ongoing tsunami with aging this decade, where it's going to increase the number of people who are going to be over 65 is going to increase very rapidly. It also means that our workforce is also aging rapidly and our healthcare workforce is aging rapidly. So if we're talking about nursing shortages right now, which is not just happening in Canada, but in the United States and, and other countries, imagine what it's going to be like by the end of this decade. And, and we're going to have to train more people. Uh, and we're going to have to, to the extent that we can, bring more people into the country in, in healthcare. And so we need, there's going to be a lot of demands that are going to be re uh, required. And that's why I think we have to uh, engage, I think, uh, the private sector to try to develop some of those efficiencies and innovations that are going to really help us deal with the costs of providing healthcare services. And, and governments can then devote their money to the things that are needed, such as acute beds, you know, where we ran down acute beds. And as, uh, as uh, Janice McKinnon has argued uh, in, in a discussion I had with her, uh, you know, the one of the things that happened uh, over the years, governments were trying to save money on costs and acute beds are being very expensive. So that's where they cut them. And then of course, we weren't ready for the pandemic in 2020 because we had undermined our acute care facilities too much. So governments are still going to have to, through the public system, provide certain services like acute, acute beds. Uh, but if we cut there uh, because of the costs, uh, then, uh, then we're actually hurting ourselves in terms of dealing with some real serious issues that come up at certain points of time. And so that's why we have to look at these other areas uh, to make sure that we can drive efficiencies and reduce costs, as well as make it very attractive for people wanting to set up clinics in, in Canada, and even maybe even attract people, entrepreneurs from other countries that want to come to Canada and also set up those clinics. Yeah, and work that into um, our express entry program for for immigration as well to fill the gap for nurses and physicians and healthcare professionals because we will we will see a critical gap. We're already seeing it as a result of fatigue uh, from COVID. I know of even in our own circle, we, we're our general practitioner doctor is leaving uh, the the practice, um, and not all families have a family doctor already. It's only going to be a bigger challenge. That's why in the in the last election, not that I'm always relitigating things, we had a stable, predictable flow of federal funds, but we said we would work with the provinces to encourage more of this, as Saskatchewan did with, with diagnostic imaging and other issues. There's a net benefit to everyone and more capital, more efficiencies, better outcomes for the patient. So why would we not do that, let alone hold the threat of pulling back federal funds if you're doing any of this innovation experimentation. Um, it's an area where that overlapping federal provincial, the, the, the tax taxing federal power and the deliverer provincially need to work together to really meet a, a rising need before it floods us. 
I, I I totally agree with that, and I and I think there are some great opportunities down the road, you know, such as virtual care, which which not only means providing virtual care, let's say a doctor to patients that are within a, a certain jurisdiction, you know, like a municipality or something like that, but also virtual care that could apply to other parts of Canada. Uh, for example, I went to uh, I had. Uh, uh, scans done. My wife and I had scans done in Calgary. And the radiologist told me that from Calgary, he was uh, providing services up in Northwest Territories and, and the Yukon, where he could, where he was reading uh, scans and then providing the reports up north. So that's kind of virtual care in, in, in a way. So that's just one little example, but there's all sorts of great opportunities that, that could have not only helping reduce our costs, uh, but also improve actually the, the level of service, especially for remote parts of Canada. Yeah. And your example of the Indigenous community issue is a great one. Wouldn't it be amazing to see this level of innovation uh, and potentially Indigenous-led leadership and, and equity investment uh, on, a, on a pilot like this? This is the type of innovation we need, uh, or we're going to continue to see our country ranking in the bottom third, which it consistently does in terms of, of how we compare in terms of our healthcare system to other countries. We like to think we are the best and we have this irreplaceable system. But I remember looking at a study a few years ago where the UK, Australia, the Netherlands were all the models and we were in the bottom third. Um, well, actually, we need to, even worse is it even that. worse? Well, if you look at the Commonwealth uh, Fund uh, study, which is 11 countries, in fact, the ones you mentioned are in, in that. So um, Canada actually ranks uh, 10 out of 11, and uh, oh. we're only above the United States. Uh, and, and we do know that U.S. has some phenomenal uh, health services if you can afford it, uh, but uh, they don't have great coverage in terms of the whole population. Canada, we cover the whole population, but we have mediocre services. Uh, well, you have other parts of the world that have much better coverage and at the same time, uh, better quality services. And, and that's what the Commonwealth uh, Fund studies have shown. Well, 10th place should not be good enough, especially in a list of, a, of 11. Um, and that's why these conversations are so important, Jack. So I think I, you know, I could speak to you about public policy for hours. Uh, it is why you're very deserving of the Order of Canada snowflake on your lapel. You have helped advise governments provincially, federally, red, blue, maybe even a tinge of orange. I'm not sure. But yeah, no, I have. yeah, yeah. Th <laughs> thank you for your incredible contributions to public policy in Canada, um, particularly your work in the 90s on taxation has helped uh, lead to billions of investments, uh, employment for, for millions of families. And thank you for taking a little bit of a time on, on your schedule to blue sky this, because all these issues are related to the, the $3 trillion in total indebtedness at all levels of government, our productivity challenge coupled with our demographic challenge. The good thing is we're a leading country in terms of immigration. People still want to come here. We need that. But we're we're seeing that younger generation is 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 going to have a hard time paying for the boomers and even the Xers as the demands and expectations of our healthcare system, uh, biologic drugs, other things start that the costs will start outstripping our capacity to pay unless we innovate here and unless we see more capital investment, more private sector leadership in an economic recovery that is sustained. So thank you very much for blue skying these issues with us today. My pleasure. Happy to do so. Well, and thank you for tuning in to the Blue Skies political podcast. I loved this one. We had a leading Canadian expert talking economic issues, uh, business competitiveness, productivity, and healthcare, an issue that, that came up during the last federal election, and one that should be talked about devoid of political attacks or, or third rail politics if we really want to lead the world and provide the system and the quality of life that we've come to expect with living in Canada, we have to make sure that we're never complacent. We're not satisfied with being 10th out of 11. So today on the Blue Skies Political Podcast, I always say my podcast is generally nonpartisan. I got a few digs in today and I did 
I did start with the promise by uh, Justin Trudeau never to run a deficit more than than $10 billion. I did that because these things matter. And if you let the finances of the country operate on cruise control and spending get out of grip and all levels of government grow, very quickly the economic environment can change and Canada can go from uh, relative affluence to, to challenging years ahead. And I certainly hope that is not the case. But today we were able to talk about this in, in a serious way because we owe it to our children not to burden them with $3 trillion and a, and a shrinking economy. And that is why we covered this topic today. If you have any comments on anything you heard in this Blue Skies political podcast or a suggestion for an excellent guest like Dr. Mintz or, or a public policy expert on an issue you think is important to Canadians, send me an email, comment through direct message, share this podcast because we need to blue sky more issues like this to make sure blue skies are ahead for Canadians and our economy. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Thank you for joining us today for another episode of the Blue Skies Political Podcast. <music>